You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome. Today, I am speaking with my friend Tour Demista. Tour is an investor, an analyst, and an editor-in-chief at Adamant Research, with a very strong focus on Bitcoin and blockchain technology. Tour was one of the first and most vocal proponents of Bitcoin when it was still in the single digits, and he's been following the cryptocurrencies really since their infancy, around about January 2012, in fact. I'm speaking with him today, and I've recorded the conversation for your benefit. I hope you enjoy it. So let's talk about Bitcoin. I'm curious as to your thoughts, basically given what we've had both with Ethereum just recently with the with the hack there, and then of course with Bitfinex being hacked, it's quite a topical argument now. And I think there's a lot of people that are they're questioning. Let's start with the first order of events, I think, which is Bitcoin and the recent hack on Bitfinex, which was the largest non-Chinese trading platform by volume, I believe. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's like another day in Bit- in the wild west of Bitcoin. Like there's just so much is happening always and uh, there's just always spectacle. And, and this is another one of those, one of those events. 120,000 Bitcoins got stolen. I think that's about, uh, I think it's about 4% of the Bitcoins in circulation, something like that. Probably, probably higher, like more like seven. Um, that's that's a huge amount, and that obviously has an impact. Bitfinex, I actually have some communication with uh, the people from Bitfinex going back to 2013. I was uh, early 2013. I was doing some research, on, like good trading platforms, exchanges, and uh, and back then I asked them like, so yeah, what's what's your situation, and how do you work? And they said in that email that half their volume. Um, I believe came from Mt. Gox. So they had an account with the now late Mt. Gox. And so they got a lot of their um, liquidity from that platform. And so that already turned me off. And that's why I never recommended uh, the platform. Also, I asked for like the the resume of one of the employees and they didn't want to give it to me. And I mean, you can find all kinds of reasons for that. But uh, I think it's been over the years become pretty clear that they had uh, a pretty a pretty young team. They were geographically dispersed, um, and they weren't very careful. That really showed. They had been hacked before. They had been hacked for like I think four thousand bitcoins or something before. And so, it, you know, to a lot of people that have been around, this is not a huge surprise that uh, Bitfinex went. Uh, I mean, maybe it's too early to say belly up because technically they're still open for business and they're trying to dodge legal bullets and they're trying to keep their. I think the writing's on the wall. I think they will probably go, uh, if not now, soon, then in the next few years. Uh, it's basically like another one of those events that that is a milestone in the the maturation of of Bitcoin. Like we we just can't afford to. Uh, you can't afford to be an amateur in Bitcoin. It it just it's gonna bite you and it's gonna bite your customers eventually. And so these guys, for example, they had coins in hot wallets, uh, which were secured by multi-sig. So you need multiple people to sign. But of course, that's very vulnerable to maybe insiders. Like we don't know who stole the bitcoins, but it basically means that there's no 
there's no fail safe. Once the accounts start draining, it's it's hard to, you know, if it, it can everything can be said and done in a matter of minutes. And that's kind of what happened with Bitfinex. Whereas if you have most of everything, all of your Bitcoins or your clients' Bitcoins in cold storage with an air gap where you, you have to actually manually go fetch some USB keys and, you know, uh, trans make the transfers, then, um, you know, theft like that is, is a lot harder. And so I think that's one of the big lessons now is that, yeah, multi-sig is great, but you have to combine it with just the best practice of storing Bitcoins actually offline. Um, that's that's really the, there's no way around it. It's the safest way. And then there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole legal question now, like what's what's going to happen? I mean, we can go in, in a lot of detail as to, you know, how they're trying to solve the problem but uh for me the the big picture is like it's a hiccup i don't think the 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 bull rally in bitcoin is over it started uh i think it's like last august let me actually check the graph when uh, we start going up in bitcoin but i don't think that rally is uh, is over it just uh, gave us a reason to have a healthy correction and i don't know those are like my my general thoughts it's it's not really a big deal and you can't also compare it with uh the dow for example because it doesn't really lay lays bare uh, a fundamental issue with bitcoin like these guys just didn't they weren't careful and uh, and it's different with the uh, ethereum and the dow because they're uh in some ways it was almost inevitable that uh, that hack would happen so that leads me to a question in terms of particular um, trading platforms do you have any that you feel comfortable enough to recommend obviously bitfinex isn't one that you'd not recommend right well obviously everyone is now saying that uh, you have to go to btce because that's the next one that has the highest volumes uh, <laughs> i'm saying that with like a bit of a an ironic uh, uh, note because it's another one of those exchanges nobody really knows who operates it they're in eastern europe somewhere uh there are stories that it's hard to confirm them but that there is manipulation from the inside to maximize their profits in dishonest ways uh i i removed any of the little amounts of coins that i had there a long time ago but yeah it's hard it's hard because the depends what you want if you want to trade with 50x leverage then it's hard to find an exchange that's that's really placed by the book and that's regulated and you can probably do that in china but then there are some questions there too as to how secure things are and so as far as trading goes i think there's just you know some some healthy uh, rules of thumb like just only trade with a small percentage of of your assets in general and then also if you have bitcoin do it only with a small amount of bit a small amount of bitcoin because it's still very early days and i think the gains that you can have by trading and then the subsequent losses if some exchange goes belly up or uh, if there's a flash crash because these things they happen quite regularly i'm not sure if they will be your results will be so much better versus a, a buy and hold strategy but if you do want to trade i mean i'm an investor in kraken i like the exchange they've been around since 2011 uh they spent i think at least i think it was two years they spent two years in um stealth mode before they actually launched the exchange because they wanted to to do it right the inspiration came from them traveling to japan in 2011 and seeing how poorly mount gox was run and deciding to to do a better job I think Itbit is pretty good also as far as reputation goes. 
but they seem to be pivoting maybe away from the Bitcoin exchange side of things. Uh, GDAX is probably okay because they're, they're well-funded, uh, but they don't have that much volume. And then there is um, the Winklevoss brothers, uh, Gemini. They're not doing that well uh, with volumes, but uh, I mean, the Winklevoss brothers own about 1% of all the Bitcoins. So I'm sure that if there's a hack, they can probably yeah, make people whole again. And if you were just going to be purchasing Bitcoin in order to hold it, then right. the, the answer really is in putting it in cold storage and not having it on any particular trading platform. Buy through a trading platform and then hold it on a USB or something of that nature. Would that be your the, the way that you would do that? Yeah, so I would definitely recommend putting some coins in cold storage under your own control. Uh, have a look at BitcoinTrezor.com which is um, a hardware wallet. You just stick it in your USB drive and um, you can sign transactions with it, but it's not ex your computer or whatever malware is on your computer cannot access the hardware of the hardware wallet. So in that sense, there's an air gap. You can create paper wallets. There's crypto steel now, which is basically a, a fireproof wallet where you can save your private keys, basically the seed for your wallet. Um, so there's a lot of ways to have physical Bitcoins, to really have it in your hand and have the only copy or make multiple copies and put them in different locations, even around the world. So I definitely recommend that. But then also, I think it's a good idea to acknowledge that unless you're a security expert and it's your job and your life, it's possible to make mistakes with that, to uh, to kind of, you know, uh, take a wrong step or even just simply to forget a password and lose access. Uh, it's maybe like a small chance, but there's a lot of examples in the Bitcoin space of people. I mean, Stefan Thomas, for example, who is now with Ripple, he asked for Bitcoin donations and he had some Bitcoins of his own and he forgot, literally forgot the passphrase that gave him access to a wallet of 7000 Bitcoins. And those are totally unrecoverable now. So to also consider uh, putting some coins in a Bitcoin bank where they are in third party storage or to um, uh, you if you're going to do multi-sig cold storage to uh, use a company or um, to be the co-signer of one of your wallets. So Zappo, for example, XAPO is a, is a Bitcoin bank that focuses mostly on um, cold storage for companies and individuals. But yeah, I mean, the rule of thumb is, I think, diversification keep keep a good guy a good eye on on those assets and uh, store them for the long run very good so another question that i've got to roll Powell, a friend of mine mentions that he doesn't really see bitcoin as a as a currency yet but he sees it as a transaction platform and at some point there's the potential that it could turn into a currency or be utilized as a currency do you agree with that or how, how do you how do you look at Bitcoin as it is now? It's been through an evolution. Where do you kind of th think it fits right now? And I'm talking about Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, not the underlying blockchain technology. Right. Well, yeah, then I guess it's important to first define your terms because there's quite a number of definitions that go around. I guess the classical one, uh, the classical definition of money is a, a store of value account and then also a medium of exchange. 
And then uh, I think currency is a bit more limited. And so maybe it's just a store of value and a medium of exchange. I think those two apply to Bitcoin already, depending for which purposes. Obviously, if you're a sovereign nation or if you're a huge bank, then obviously there are some liquidity constraints. But uh, I think I would call it uh, a currency, at least as far as store of value and uh, medium of exchange go. But um, yeah, it it. It's obviously already a, a platform for value exchange. I, I agree on that. I think very long run, uh, we can probably see cryptocurrencies be used as units of account, especially if the volatility that we're now like slowly seeing build in the fiat world is uh, is going to increase. And and if we see it more and more in, I mean, even you know, yen volatility has gone up a lot. Yen is one of the most traded currencies in the world, and and the one of the most liquid markets in, in in fiat land and yet volatility really is going up there too so once we see it in the dollar for example i think then you know slowly we can start seeing a shift where people use bitcoin as the denominator as well but we're definitely not there yet no i mean i think you're right you mentioned vol volume and the volume behind bitcoin is still fractional with respect to another currency at the same right. time, if we look at the history of Bitcoin, volatility has decreased because of volume increasing, which is just a it's it's a mathematically that's what's going to happen typically, right? While that has been the case for Bitcoin, we're also seeing an increase in the volatility of large currencies, fiat currencies. And so you mentioned the yen, and that's a good example, but we're seeing it in large traded currencies. We saw it in the Swiss franc when the peg broke. Last year, we saw it in the sterling post-Brexit, where these moves have been six, seven, ten sigma event moves. It's 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 actually it's a strange situation in that volatility is being suppressed and it's very low, but then you're having these these pops, if you will, that are extremely out of the ordinary and volatility explodes. And that's really a factor of dire situation that the world finds itself in with respect to um, central banks' intervention in markets, and that plays into it plays into Bitcoin as an alternative for some of these things. One of the things that keeps getting brought up to me by friends and family is this fact that there's a concern that regulators would come in and they would ban the currency. At the same time, if I'm going to look at other events that have been taking place there's been over a billion dollars invested in blockchain companies and all of the major banks are either working on or invested in the technology to some degree so i find it difficult to imagine that that will go away what are your views on that relationship between blockchain which is essentially where a lot of this billion dollars has been invested in mm -hmm. and bitcoin the currency right well First of all, when you're talking about liquidity and and like and 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 markets and suppression and stuff, uh, I think Bitcoin is very interesting in the sense that it's arguably one of the one of the freest, most unfettered markets and currency in the world. Like there, if you look at the, even the smaller exchanges and then also the over-the-counter, the places where you can trade it over-the-counter, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of, of um, ways to, to buy and sell Bitcoin in, in so many currencies around the world. So I think that's interesting. Like it, if anything, the Bitcoin price, I believe at least, is, is very, the manipulation is very low. Maybe there are some attempts here and there, but I think there 
mostly short term. You can't really play the market for for um, a long time. I think that's one thing. And then basically, you know, the the, the establishment, the, the legacy system, the governments. Um, and initially, Bitcoin was dismissed as a whole. It was just not even not even looked at. And then it was looked at from a skeptical perspective, like, oh, you can buy drugs with it. And so we have to, like, maybe put a lid on it. And then that didn't happen. And now it's like, oh, well, there's this technology called the blockchain. And uh, maybe we can use it for our own purposes and kind of, you know, steal the momentum away from Bitcoin. Maybe, you know, we just kind of make our own softer version of it. And uh, you see that uh, the Bank of Canada, the, the the Bank of England, they they are actually working on proposals to to launch their own uh, cryptocurrency. So I think there are some parallels to be drawn between this and you know back uh, in in the '90s where you had the internet coming up, which was really challenging a lot of the status quo, and uh, you had the telecom companies and and uh, a lot of established companies that decided to uh, try to create their own internets that they control, like the intranets. And, um, you know, some of that worked out, but it turned out that their impact was a lot smaller and a lot of bubbles were blown in that environment. And I think in the blockchain, the blockchain discussion is kind of similar where it's very safe for a big bank to allocate a few million dollars in and invest it in quote unquote blockchain technology because, you know, you don't have to explain yourself to the central bank or to, you know, the prime minister or whoever that what are you investing in this crazy piracy establishment challenging uh, technology? Like you don't have to do that. It's just, no, we're working on blockchain and it's going to be regulated and KYC and it's very safe. But uh, a lot of people are asking the question, what is really the difference between a quote-unquote private blockchain and a database? Just databases that have been around for decades. And uh, the answer may be not that much uh, because one of the main attributes that makes Bitcoin so unique is the fact that the ledger is nearly untamperable. You can't mess with it. You can't change it. Once the transaction is there, it's pretty much set in stone. Uh, It's irreversible. And uh, obviously, that's, you know, regulators, they don't really like that. They prefer to, you know, to have the final word and maybe whether a transaction should go through or not. And so, yeah, that's my idea is that it, there's a bit of a hype and uh, th- this there's a risk there of a bubble that then could just deflate. And a lot of those initiatives uh, that are now getting a lot of cheap money from banks and even governments that you know those sources eventually might dry up that's not to say that sorry that's not to say that there's no value at all in in blockchain technologies but then you have to ask like what is going to be the ultimate consensus layer like what at some point you're going to try to you know lay down transactions for you know the for being the final ledger and uh, are you are are companies around the world or governments around the world really going to trust your private blockchain? That that would be one of my questions. The other element, I guess, that's intrinsically built into the blockchain is that it is something which is not owned by anyone. So if you've got Royal Bank of Scotland or the um, Bank of England, whoever it happens to be, they've got, they can utilize the technology, but it's they're using it in a, I don't know, could say a controlled environment 
And as such, the distribution of that is always going to be somewhat limited, right? I could see you could have central banks, you could have private banks, um, any relevant financial party that could utilize the core technology and do so within a controlled environment and have their own sort of their own little party on the side, right? But the ability for that to supersede the underlying blockchain and that scalability that it provides doesn't doesn't seem to be a, a good bet. Right. And then also you have to ask like <clears throat> when is you know when is the environment when is the time going to be ripe for central banks to launch their own cryptocurrencies and basically saying like, you know, this is the old way we did it. Um, we're going to do an overhaul and we'll have a new system and it's going to be, you know, blockchain. It's going to be Fedcoin or something. I mean, arguably, that would have to be an environment where something urge is urgent and something, you know, some change is needed because the trust is really eroding, kind of like what happened in France, maybe like uh, pre-revolutionary France where... You know, they had so much debt and uh, people were, were totally lost faith in the currency and they tried to relaunch the French franc by at some point saying like, oh, well, this version of the French franc is backed by all the lands of the church that we confiscated. And of course, it didn't work. And, I, I, you know, that's one of the scenarios I think is, is kind of plausible that uh, central banks, they'll be backed in a corner. There'll be very high inflation, a lot of um, uproar. And then some some bold or bolder whatever central bank will say like all right well let's do something radical like we'll have a blockchain fiat currency but um you know and, and so i don't th so basically what i'm saying is i don't think these blockchain currencies will be launched from a position of strength and i think that will play into the hand of bitcoin which has a much longer history and is a lot more neutral and um and basically it does not require trust because well, yeah would what about foreign nations would they really trust uh fed coin or would they really trust bank of canada coin uh th that's still up in the air i think so that that brings me to a question which i think most people struggle with a little bit the relationship between blockchain and bitcoin the currency so if for example you have a world where central banks, private banks, whoever it may be, utilize that blockchain technology. Can you explain how you, the relationship between that technology and Bitcoin? Right. Um, well, because, it, because it plays into why you kind of can't really have one without the other. Right. I, again, I think the comparison with the, the internet and intranets and, and like inter intercorporate networks that then can uh, that that sometimes do or sometimes don't link into the bigger internet um, and so with blockchain you can do basically whatever you want it's just what is it it's just it's just a ledger it's a series of um, of blocks of transactions that are linked together with cryptographic proof and uh, that, that's basically what it is and it makes it harder to to tamper with it and you know in the case of private blockchains at least you would hope that they would be tamper proof they would probably not be uh tamper uh sorry uh, tamper evident so they'll probably not be tamper proof but at least if somebody messes with it you could still you know you'd have evidence of that and that's different that's a lot more transparent than the way things work now um 
And so I think there are uh, initiatives that are trying to build bridges. Uh, maybe the Hyperledger project that uh, Blythe Masters is working on has some things that could, you know, in the future serve as a bridge towards Bitcoin, where you um, you basically create software, you, you know, you, you make the legacy banking software compatible with the, the Bitcoin blockchain environment. Uh, and then some other ones will totally not be compatible and uh, and they i think they're at risk uh you want to it's it's a protocol war is, is what's going on now and that's why it's hard to to make these definitive statements uh other than looking at the history of protocols and that is that often uh, uh the dumb simple protocols that uh were there early on they're, they often have a lot of staying power. They're often very, very sticky, like TCPIP or uh, the SMTP protocol for email. Uh, like there's 100 people that have uh, come up with ways to improve or uh, to have a, a totally new and better email protocol, but they never won because they weren't first. And uh, so much infrastructure was built on top of those early protocols. Uh, they're now like 30, 40 years old often, these, these early internet protocols. So... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I think, yeah. I, yeah, you make I don't a know. great point there in terms of that. It's not just the early adopter or, or the, the first mover, because first movers don't always win. But yeah. what where you have a first mover that is essentially like a foundation, and then every little additional story level that is built on top of that first foundation means that taking away that foundation um, becomes less and less probabilistic as time mm -hmm. progresses. And so just as with the internet, all of the applications that have been built on the top of that are um, that they or they decrease the probability that you would have the internet go away and be replaced by something else. And, then, and I see blockchain is in the same tech, same way. And, and if we look at distributed ledger technology, the, the one that is the largest, and even if it's not the best, is Bitcoin. Um, yeah, there's, there's and, probably better systems out there, but it is the most simple um, and it has the most traction. And again, that billion dollars that has been invested by venture capital firms into this technology, many of many of them are actually utilizing that blockchain. And so they're not utilizing their own, some other derivative of it. And so as particular, as, as additional applications are being built around this, it actually increases its robustness. Right. And then, and especially when you look at, I mean, what's the goal of Bitcoin? It's if you look at the white paper and, and the whole history of uh, cypherpunk that, uh, that comes before it, it's to create digital cash, uh, basically, you know, money that is safe in, uh, in a digital environment. And if you look at Bitcoin the past seven years, Every choice has been to uh, improve, to solidify and improve the security of Bitcoin. That's why it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. There are some smart contracts capabilities such as multi-sig and stuff built into the system, but they're limited. And uh, it's hard to argue that there is a system that, um, you know, that could be a magnitude uh, more secure than Bitcoin. That's very hard to argue because it's proof of work. It's as straightforward as it gets. You just do the work. And if you want to reverse transactions, you have to do as much work as has been done in the past um, to, to undo transactions. And that's, that's uh, in, in the end, it becomes 
infinitely expensive to do that. And so there's that. There's this clear trade-off in favor of security. But then there's also seven years of hackers that have hacked away at Bitcoin and their their weapons are blunt and dull now because it's never worked. The Bitcoin network has never been hacked. And so if you want to store $100 million worth of value in cryptocurrency, well, which one are you going to choose? You're going to you know, are you going to choose this newfangled variation of like secure blockchain whatever that has not been tested or you're going to choose Bitcoin. Well, it's likely that you will choose Bitcoin and by putting more value into Bitcoin, you also put more value in the the hands of the miners, the people who validate transactions and get rewarded for that. And so there's this virtuous loop where uh, the more people use it, the more secure the system becomes. Yes. And you see it also in, in the mining chips. Uh, ASIC chips are, are specialized um, chips designed only for mining Bitcoins. And they're now uh, basically, they caught up with uh, 20 years of... of uh, chip designs and they're almost cutting edge now you have mining chips bitcoin mining chips i think they're 14 in 14 nanometers they're coming out now that's about as as close to the technical limit worldwide and so once you get on par with that it's going to become uh, commoditized it's going to become similar to a chip that's inside any cell phone in the world and so you know, the the mining is going to become a lot more decentralized than it is today and in, in the long run it's still going to be industrial scale but i think it'll be more decentralized than it is today and that's good for bitcoin again good for security you mentioned something else that i just wanted to elaborate on which i think not for you know anybody listening that's not familiar with bitcoin or blockchain technology and what you mentioned was that bitcoin is that the blockchain has never been hacked the bitcoin blockchain and so a lot of people for example will look at bitfinex or mount gox or any of these and say oh hang on it's been hacked and the important distinction is that it's that exchange which has been hacked so it's a little bit like you have money right and money exists in the world and you have various banks there's Citibank, there's jp morgan there's, there's dozens of banks right and one of those banks gets robbed, it doesn't mean that money itself, uh, whether it be dollars or yen or euro, changes or has been necessarily put at risk. It's just one of the participants in that market has been hacked. And that's, I think it's right. an important distinction. I'm, I know that many people have not, that they equate Bitcoin with all of these these hacks that, that take place. And it's really just because it's not, it's still a very, it's still a very young currency and it's still a very young technology in the greater scheme of things. And right. So yeah. And I think I think it's helpful to to use gold as a, as kind of the measuring stick to to look at how how what qualities Bitcoin does and does not have. And um, yeah, like a gold bank can be robbed or me personally, I can be you know robbed of my gold coins. But it doesn't mean that, you know, that gold as a financial asset, therefore, is all of a sudden exposed as being less valuable or something. And uh, and so with Bitcoin, if you want to look at uh, its qualities, is you want to see uh, whether its financial policy, for example, is immutable, just like it is with gold, like the, the 21 million cap for Bitcoin. There is, you know, somewhere out there, there is a cap as to how much gold can be um can be mined in the world and so uh you know that creates a, a great sense of security because you know that on, there's only going to be one percent more gold every year coming out of the ground and uh, that helps investors and, and everyone involved and so yeah like 
Bitcoin in the same sense, the creator described in one of his comparisons, describes Bitcoin as an inert metal. He's like, imagine Bitcoin as an inert metal and uh, and you can send it around the world instantaneously. That that I think reveals some of the aspirations that, that are behind it. And it has that it has that mathematical characteristic to it. Certainly it doesn't have the physical characteristic and that is not a physical object like a metal is or anything on the periodic table of elements. So when I look at it, I look at it from an exchange as you talk about a currency and a currency can be a medium of a, should be a medium of exchange as well as a store of value. On an intrinsic basis, you could make the argument that Bitcoin is not intrinsically valuable, but certainly it has the ability to exchange value um, as a medium of exchange. And if you're going to contrast it against other means of transacting value, certainly fiat currency, then mathematically it is a far more robust system than, than any of those because your medium of exchange should not go down in value based on inflation of supply to the extent that fiat currency could do, could do. It can go down in value um, due to a number of other circumstances, but it can't do so due to the inflation of it. Um, right. Again, because of the, uh, the structure, right? And that there's only so many that'll be issued and so on and so forth. Whereas, as we know, central bankers typically have used inflation to pay off debts. Um, so there's a whole lot of other mechanics when you contrast it with a fiat currency system that make it quite a an interesting play. And I mean, I think they also reveal fiat currency to be you know fraudulent, basically, because uh, you dilute the money supply and uh, and it's unpredictable. And there's only there's only one person that can do it without being punished. And it's basically fraud. And you can't do that in Bitcoin. So, yeah, just as a as a side note. Um, I think it's it's it it really makes a lot of people that come from tech technical backgrounds uh, really think uh, or see traditional money from a whole new perspective. The other aspect, I guess, um, almost as a service to humanity, is that by understanding Bitcoin or by attempting to understand Bitcoin, one actually needs to make that contrast and needs to go and learn about fiat currency, and that yes. in itself will will open many eyes um, to the fraudulent system that we have today in fiat currency. And again, so things are based on relative value. So on a relative basis, when you look at a, a fiat currency, <clears throat> and certainly the fiat currencies of the world today in the situation uh, that we have, that makes Bitcoin on a relative basis a very interesting um, value play. Yeah, like in, in similar to back when... BitTorrent was invented, or I guess before that, there were some other platforms where all of a sudden you could exchange music over the internet, and then people started asking, like, is it really great value to have to pay 20 bucks for, you know, 50 minutes of music? Uh, maybe there are other and better ways, and eventually it turned into Spotify and, and all the platforms that we have today. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very powerful to have new technology open people's eyes and, and allow them to question something that they had never questioned before. You did on. The other question that I've got for you, Tor, was around other cryptocurrencies, the most notable being Ethereum. And you've spent a bit of time on identifying the, pris the, the, the risks in Ethereum well before the hack that took place. And um, you were certainly one of the um, one of the only 
uh, proponents of Bitcoin that had come out and suggested why Ethereum was not all it was cracked up to be. I think anyone that's been following your work would be truly grateful for that, those sorts of insights. Could you spend just a short bit of time on um, on the differences between Ethereum and Bitcoin? Why it's it's a fairly reasonable probability to say that Bitcoin is the is the better alternative, even though right. Ethereum, you know, has bells and whistles which are um, well in excess of that which Bitcoin has. Right. Well, even that we could. We could talk about that. I don't actually. I don't think that um, Ethereum can create uh, functionality um, that Bitcoin can't. But um, yeah. So so Ethereum, the way it's conceived, it uh, grew from Vitalik. I, I met him. I think for the first time in 2013. So he was um, a writer for uh, Bitcoin Magazine. He did some coding here and there, and then uh, got really interested in. Uh, the idea of issuing assets on top of of Bitcoin. He looked into colored coins and you know, other ways to to basically imbue uh, Bitcoin with more functionality. And then he got frustrated about some of the limitations and decided eventually to create his own coin, and that became came Ethereum. Um, and so the way it was presented to the world is that Ethereum is a virtual machine. It's basically a computer that lives in the cloud and you can um, you can pay uh, some money to have this distributed computer execute code. And then they call that code often smart contracts. Um, that's that's one of the, the words that's often being used or decentralized autonomous organizations is another one. Um, <clears throat> And so the way to achieve that was to give Ethereum programming language, a language that is way more functional than Bitcoin and uh, basically allowed for much more flexibility. It's, it's, as far as I understand, it's based on JavaScript. And that sounds great, but the downside is that it, it's very hard to assess the risks. With every piece of code that you put on the Ethereum network, there could be loopholes, there could be uh, ways in which they can be exploited. And one of the ways I've compared it to, one of the ways I've, one of the metaphors that I've used to describe it is to describe it as straw. It's, it's very malleable. Uh, you can totally imagine like all kinds of structures that are built with it. Um, you can be very creative with it. But then again, there's, there's a lot of risk there too. It's very flammable. It's very, very weak. And uh, and Bitcoin, on the other hand, is more like reinforced concrete, where it just takes a lot of work to to put down a structure. And there's a lot of limitations to what you can do with it. But on the other hand, it's a lot more secure and robust. And so there are, uh, I mean, there are so many concerns. For if you look at the technical community, I like my the concerns that I've voiced are are based on on. Uh, the ones of of people who are experts in cryptography and and uh, and coding and open source projects and so what I say is is not new to them at all. It's only that uh, I feel like those voices have been not heard too much in the investment side of things because people get really excited when something goes from ten million to a hundred million and then to a billion dollars, which is what Ethereum did. Uh, then you're more likely to buy into you know the the the, the Kool Aid or the positive messages, and so yeah, I have that concern that that it's like oh well you know Bitcoin is gold and Ethereum is oil. That's one of the comparisons that's being made, and that bit and Ethereum is much more like a a platform for exchanging things, and but in the end 
what they want to do is they want to exchange a lot of value, ideally billions of dollars of value. But then at the same time, they're not as secure as Bitcoin. It's 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 you cannot argue that Ethereum is more secure than Bitcoin. I mean, I, I could just talk on and on. There's just so many concerns like the hard forks, for example. Bitcoin has never done. I know people are going to disagree with me, but Bitcoin has never done a hard fork in the sense that you can still download the software that uh, came out in 2010 and uh, run it today and it would still download the entire blockchain. So you, the network was never split in different networks. With Ethereum, that has happened and uh, there there are plans to do even more of that where you basically split the network in half and uh, it just, it's like Pandora's box. It just creates so many problems and uh, and some of those problems are already happening today. Last question that I've got involves China. So we know that China makes up the vast majority of the Bitcoin market. Um, I just saw a Wall Street Journal article, I think it was the last month, mentioning that that it makes up up to 92% of the tradable market. So it's it's certainly the 100-pound gorilla in that space. Do you have any thoughts on how China can affect the Bitcoin market? You know, a lot of this this talk around central bank intervention, maybe where they would come in and they would ban it or anything like that. If, for example, that took place, say, in Europe and China decided that this was a this was a, a methodology that they were going to utilize, then it basically it wouldn't matter. And uh, in terms of the pricing of Bitcoin as it is now, again, if 90 percent of it is being traded in China, it really wouldn't make any difference if the Europeans or even the Americans decided that Bitcoin was the Antichrist. So do you have any sort of thoughts around um, that? Because it's, it's been a somewhat more recent shift of capital in terms of where the volumes have been moving to. Yeah, it's, it's so, so interesting. Uh, I think China volume started picking up in late 2013. Before that, it was very insignificant. One of the reasons that volumes, there are several reasons I think that volumes are high is that uh, just Chinese people love to trade. I think that's one. Another one is that Chinese exchanges, they um, the way they try to grow is by showing off how much volume they have. And uh, the way they create a lot of volume is there has been some evidence. I don't know how pervasive it is, but I think uh, it happens for sure is that there's artificial volume that is created, generated by the exchanges internally. And then we also have the zero fees policy where exchanges try to get traction and grow more and more. They basically, they burn the VC money and then they try to just uh, grow in size first and they offer free free trades to people and so it becomes very attractive then to uh, have bots just do lots and lots of trading on on those exchanges and so i think that's important to take into account when looking at volumes Uh, i have seen that when you look at technical analysis that often in rallies you'll see a premium happen when there's a big rally in bitcoin Uh, bitcoins will be a bit more expensive in china they'll be like uh, even three four percent more expensive in China, and that'll like settle down again once the price is more stable. So you kind of see that China tends to be the locomotive for for big rallies in Bitcoin. But then on the other hand, on the downside, I see more buying happening in the West, in the dollar market uh, to support the price when uh, it goes down a lot. So arguably there's more 
long-term ownership of Bitcoin, which makes makes sense. If you look at the very early Bitcoin adopters, most of those are in the West. And then, you know, a lot of the active trading is, is kind of happening more in the East. I think that would make sense. Uh, but as far as like, you know, what that means in terms of the future in Bitcoin, I don't think it means a whole lot. It just means more trading is happening in China. It, you know, if there's a crackdown from the government, those volumes can just change pretty quickly. And I think there has been probably less uh, regulars accounting you know control in china it's been more like just uh the legal status of the exchange without looking into you know opening the books and stuff so there might be some you know some dead bodies and closets that have not fallen out that might be later on i think what's more interesting is to look at mining in china uh, i think about 60 percent of all the mining in the world uh, happens in in chinese uh, locations uh, the reason is that startup cost is a lot quicker. You can start, you know, boot a Bitcoin mine a lot quicker in China. The uh, employment costs are a lot lower. The electricity cost is actually higher. And so uh, I know that on a smaller scale, the way it happened earlier, there were some like back backhanded deals where you would have a relationship with some, you know, highly placed uh, provincial uh, politician and he would have some warehouse and he could subsidize your, your electricity and you would then give him a cut. And But as the industry grows, I think those kind of aberrations are going to be harder to pull off. On a larger scale, and so uh, in a recent meetup uh, between most of the largest uh, Bitcoin miners and the most important core developers, some Chinese miners have actually suggested that they expect in the future that um, the majority of mining could actually start happening outside of China, and that's because of this electricity cost. That's the bottom line. So if you build out like a, an Elon Musk size, I'm um, just for sakes of argument, but if you build out a huge Bitcoin mine in, uh, you know, where, where the cheapest energy is, that it could be cheaper in, in the US potentially than in China in the long run. And again, there's also this commoditization aspect to the mining chips. And then there's also the high tech element where we could arguably see Bitcoin mining chips being embedded in heating devices to heat your home or heat an apartment building or because mining generates heat. And so you could basically have these hybrid uh, technologies. So, so yeah, I think this is probably peak could, China as far as as far as Bitcoin goes. It's 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 probable that this could be peak China. Mm, interesting, because of course it doesn't really matter where the mining. Well, it does matter where the mining takes place, but that volume of transactions in China need not necessarily take place on a Chinese exchange, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, oh and something I forgot to mention is that uh, don't forget in China. Miners connect to the internet via Tor. They use anonymous methods to stay anonymous because they don't want to be uh, raided. Uh, they don't want to be ex known where they are exactly operating from. So I think a lot of these mines operate kind of in the gray zones. They're often like in, in some valley close to some uh, a dam that generates electricity or something. So even if the government wanted to crack down on them, it might actually be a challenge to trace them down. And then even if they, you know, do the crackdown or they nationalize them, it takes a lot of technical skill to run, a, to decently run a Bitcoin mine and to replace everything. And so just like we've seen so many times with nationalizations, the, the efficiency would just drop gigantically. And so I really don't think uh, it would be very easy for a government to, uh, to do something like a Bitcoin 51% attack uh, very quickly. 
Yeah, no, I mean, nationalization and efficiency are basically what sunlight is to ice cream. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very good. Do you, do you have any catalysts that you are looking at that could be positive for Bitcoin going forward? Where, oh, where it gets yeah. becomes more mainstream. I mean, we haven't. Uh, there's there's a lot in my head, but and I know you and I have spoken about this before. But if we just cover those off, I think that that'd be useful for people. Yeah, like for me, uh, for me, it's more my focus has always been Bitcoin is going to be a store of value to reckon with. That's my main focus. And so when I think about, you know, uh, driving forces or tailwinds, I look at things that could improve or, or increase the market cap of Bitcoin, not necessarily to put it in the hands of millions more people. And so <clears throat> looking at that. I mean, there's just so much. One, I'm going to try to focus on the more obscure ones or less obvious ones. Uh, one of them, for example, is these ransomware. Ransomware is really becoming a thing where basically you are a malicious attacker from, doesn't matter, Romania or something. You attack uh, the computer's system of a, a company and you encrypt their hard drive and basically all their data becomes just a block of concrete they can't do anything with it and then you go to them and say hey i will only give you the key to decrypt your data and recover everything if you pay me and the the preferred method of payment is bitcoin by far it's probably like ransomware it's probably 99 percent of ransomware payments are made in bitcoin and so what you see is that security firms are noticing and recommending uh, banks and other companies to basically go out and buy Bitcoins today. So they have a little stash in case of attacks that they can immediately pay the ransom because it's, right. so it's, it's, it's the cheapest way to get out. An insurance product. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's right. Insure yourself now ahead of, you know, those potential risks. It, it looks like there's a potential for a fire to burn your house down. Buy some insurance now. Exactly. So there's that. that then there's... Sorry, go ahead, sorry. I, um, it's just brought up something else that I wanted to talk to you about. And I know this is getting off track, but when we had this last hack with Bitfinex, the first thing that jumped into my mind to her was what we what would really be awesome in this space is reinsurance. Are you aware of any companies that are or businesses that are being built around reinsurance of trading platforms? Because yeah, yeah. If, if that, you know, that that helps create that entire financial infrastructure that allows for people to be more confident in, in trading and be more confident in utilizing the applications that are being built yeah can you can you um just to to make sure we're on the same page uh, can you like put in your own words like reinsurance so is it like a, a so if you've got a training, policy you could yeah, like if you've got a trading platform and you've got 10 million bitcoin that are being traded on it a day i come to you and i say look here's your the, you wouldn't very quickly know what your risk exposure is it's 10 million bitcoin but well possibly less depending on how many of those bitcoin are being held on your exchange and not in cold storage, right? So you would know what your risk exposure is. I could come and I could look at the volumes. It's, it's really what actuaries do in the insurance business. And I could determine to a certain extent what that risk is. And I could charge you a fee, right? To insure you for 10 million Bitcoin or whatever the, the, the volume is. So it's really just, it's a hedging of your risk. And I would go and I would do that with 10 other platforms and my greatest risk would be that all 10 platforms get hit at once and within a short enough time frame that I go out of business. But I mean, it's, it's really just the insurance business. It's right. quite, quite a mathematical process, quite relatively easy. And what it does is it allows for platforms to hedge their risk and it allows for a, a greater robustness 
within the infrastructure of any financial system. And we're just looking at Bitcoins. It's just it's, it's another transaction medium. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, it, it will probably I mean, it has to happen at some point in the future. I think some of the reasons why it might not have so far is that uh, the amount of exchanges that do some decent volume and that are at the same time very clearly regulated and uh, auditable and audited is just very limited, very small. <clears throat> there's that. And then there's the, the fact that you're dealing with an asset that on average has appreciated by at least 50% a year. So like, you know, whatever assets you have probably should be in Bitcoin. And then, well, the insurance company then also needs to store those Bitcoins. So there's like, you know, there's just, it gets complex there. Um, and then... What else is there? Uh, there's, it's very easy to be anonymous in Bitcoin. So uh, there's this kind of a game theoretical thing where an, a, an attacker could first take an insurance policy and then do the attack and then cash out uh, the insurance money. So I, I think it, it's it's a matter of just time and maturity that, that these things will start happening. And in a way you can do it manually by just, and people do that by having, you know, putting not all your eggs in one basket and having five, if you're an active trader, have five accounts with five different trading platforms. Sure. No, look, I mean, again, of that $1 billion that has been invested into venture, venture capital into blockchain technology, um, I would be very surprised if someone's not doing that. I'm just, I was curious right. if you knew of anybody that was. Uh, I don't know. Because it's, no. you know, um, to a large extent, you're just looking at another financial medium and you can you can extrapolate out and quite quickly see the various risks that are going to exist and the services that are going to be required to actually solve those problems. It would be, yeah, I'd be interested to see if someone is actually doing it. But very good. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go back to um, the catalyst that we're talking about that could potentially move Bitcoin higher. Sure. Yeah. One of the more obvious ones is, is Bitcoin ETFs, uh, really. I mean, uh, there are uh, several ones in the works, I believe, uh, at least two, maybe three that are uh, that are basically that have been filed for and uh, I just have been waiting for approval for uh, one of them over two years now. So the moment that comes out, we can have a, we could have a GLD moment where, you know, I, I'm sure you remember how GLD yep. boosted the price of gold. I know it very well. <laughs> yeah. So so I think that really could happen because a lot of institutions are kind of itching and aching to to get involved in Bitcoin. But it's it's just really complicated now. And also people that have um, 401ks and you know uh, basically accounts that have legal restrictions, they're really waiting for an asset that's that, that's traded on, on a large exchange. So that could really give a massive boost to Bitcoin. Um, then there is... Uh, Again, a bit more, you know, kind of on the implausible side, but not impossible. Uh, central banks, you know, even if it's a central bank of a very small country that buys Bitcoin and adds it to their reserves. Uh, I mean, we have Swiss National Bank just bought a billion dollars worth of gold mining stocks. There's the Bank of Japan that has, uh, I don't know what percentage of the Japanese ETF market now, even uh, just basically stocks and, and whatever other assets. So I don't think it's a stretch to think that at some point, uh, an asset that's so similar to gold, uh, you know, why not have 0.1% uh, of uh, of your forex reserves in in Bitcoin? Even with the legitimate argument that you're just trying to protect yourself against a possible currency attack, 
uh, which you know is why the IMF was formed. You could even argue that the IMF should own Bitcoin, because um, yeah, a speculative attack. Uh, you need the currency that is used to do the attack to protect yourself against it. So that that would be another one of those. You know, could be a massive driver for the price if if some banks, central banks, started doing that, or even just regular banks. So another one that's like less, you know, in the spotlight and uh, and is underestimated, I think, is just darknet markets. If you look at, uh, you know, the darknet, um, it's basically a way to go online where you're, you know, fairly anonymous and using a specialized browser and such. Uh, Bitcoin pretty much is is the dominant currency on that on that uh, you know dark internet, and it's also part of the reason why it has been growing a lot. Uh, and a lot of um, you know we had the Silk Road, which was the first decentral uh, well not really decentralized, but the first darknet you know, eBay, and obviously a lot of uh, illegal substances were sold. Well, now there's like there's at least ten of them that are uh, kind of growing to sizes that are similar to Silk Road. And so the volumes are quite impressive. I'm, I'm still cracking some numbers on that. But if I'm if I was correct, uh, the past year, and at least in 2015, uh, at least 60,000 youths in uh, the UK have bought drugs online using Bitcoin. And that was, I think, 50% more than the year before. So obviously, that's not just happening in the UK. It's it's happening uh, worldwide. So that really could be also a driver. And that's totally, uh, I mean, that is totally an independent from any kind of crackdown that governments could possibly do because it's already illegal. And it's happening and it's growing. So that would definitely, at least in, from my point of view, put uh, a bottom under the price of Bitcoin, like a, a solid bottom, at least uh, if barring technical uh, failures and, and bugs that we don't know about. Um, so that, that's another one. And then there's the gambling markets, uh, you know, online gambling uh, is, is growing a lot and Bitcoin is used for that um, more and more. Uh, I'm sorry, I think online gambling is, is just probably growing at the pace of the internet, but uh, the Bitcoin Bitcoin uh, denominated online gambling is growing by a lot. Um, and then obviously there's, you know, the, we could talk about all the macro factors in the world that would lead us to think that volatility is on the increase, that bonds could decline, uh, that stock markets might just be either flat or go down. Uh, we could have double digit inflation. We can imagine that in virtually any country now. All those factors, I think, play in the cards of Bitcoin. Yeah, no, that's the that's one I'll just very quickly touch on, which is that we've got the most convex investment that I can find at this point in time is the sovereign bond market. We're at five thousand year highs, which means that we're uh, yeah. <laughs> five thousand year lows in terms of interest rates, and the convexity in that is extreme. So there's nobody's actually positioned for inflation. And yet at the same time, if you look at the mathematics behind all of this stuff, there's every reason to believe that that could, that could actually take place via a loss of faith in the issuer of any of these particular currencies. And, and there's a lot of them that we could now pick from. Right. And in that sort of environment where you have a loss of faith, then that becomes immediately very inflationary. And in that environment where you have something that is intrinsically a deflationary asset, Right, which is Bitcoin, because Bitcoin doesn't inflate. Right, it, mm -hmm. once the twenty-one million has been issued, that's it. There's no, and then it's just a matter of supply and demand. And if there is demand that exceeds even by a fraction of a percent, it is then intrinsically deflationary. In that environment, right. it becomes 
a very attractive investment opportunity. And that's so there's there's actually asymmetry on both sides of that. And then we've got this entire um, bond market situation that um, we've been enjoying for some time now. And right. when, not if that blows up, um, then as that as that flows through the markets, the question is what benefits, what assets benefit, what don't, and so on and so forth. And the other component behind it is that there's no leverage in the system, in the Bitcoin system. There is no, right. uh, you know, outside of traders that are um, leveraging up and then the risk actually lies in the counterparties and it, it could be Bitcoin exchanges. Um, in the actual system itself, there's essentially no leverage. Um, and so that's, I find that quite an interesting component that many people don't really sort of think about. Right, and then the the consequence as well of of increased volatility and uh, and higher inflation and all those kind of things is is capital becomes look at China capital becomes restless and it, it wants to find a safe haven and it wants to lead the country and then all of a sudden there's crackdown there's capital controls there's um, and and then what do you do like you see all these I just it just cracks me up every time these I mean it's tragic too but these uh, people who get caught on borders with gold strapped to their bodies and uh, you know uh, just cars that are trying to drive from Italy into Switzerland with bars of gold in, in the trunk and I mean if you would just put some bitcoins encrypt them and put them on a USB stick you can just walk across any border on earth and it's it's just a matter of time before that idea sets in that yeah and also actually a lot of a lot of um heist movies become a bit uh a bit comical nowadays if you look at people like burying paper money in the desert and like sure. or they're like in a prison and they have like a secret map where the stash is it's like no man like the, the uh, yeah, way that's going to work in the future is just you just have a brain wallet. You just memorize ten words, and that's your entire Bitcoin wallet, and nobody knows about it. And the day you walk out of prison, you, it's there for you. It's a little bit like if if you if you think about the co the companies in the world that are the most valuable, they're actually holding IP. IP is the most valuable thing in the world because after the industrial revolution, when the cost of labor collapsed and when the cost of um, uh, hard infrastructure collapsed then the value shifted in towards intellectual property so a company like apple for example most of their mm -hmm. value actually lies in the um, in the design and in the intellectual property it doesn't lie in it's it's not sitting in a factory in shenzhen that produces apple Macs or uh, iphones or anything of that nature right because that can be replicated very easily anywhere else in the world yes there's a value to it but it's not the predominant value behind apple and so if, for example, you owned Apple and you wanted to transfer that asset, you literally would just put on a USB stick and stick it in your pocket and travel around the world and you have <laughs> the, the assets. And so it's, it's, a similar, uh, it's a similar structure in that, right. like, you, like you said, if you were going to transport gold, that seems insane to me. What you would do is you would, if you had physical gold in one country, right, um, you would sell it. You would then transfer it into something like Bitcoin, stick it on mm -hmm. a um, cold storage on a piece of paper, um, put it in your in your pocket, travel somewhere else, liquidate it into maybe directly into gold or into a currency, and then go and purchase gold. And that way, you would you would have you would have eliminated any risk of having a hundred percent of that asset stolen, right? Exactly. 
Sure, you'll have yeah. transaction costs. You will have foreign exchange costs if you're trans if you if you're selling the gold, and there'll be there'll be certain fees. But on a relative basis, if your risk is that you're going to have it stolen from you, then that's a very easy way to do it. Yeah, and I mean, like moving money around, like I have. I mean, like I recommend it to people in Latin America all the time because, for example, in Mexico, I think you pay, what, one, it's like half percent to sell it, half percent above the spot price is what you pay to sell your bitcoins, and then it's like, uh, literally less than half a dollar to have it put on your Mexican bank account. That's how cheap it is. So as long as you have Bitcoin somewhere in the world, you can get them into Mexico. And and the same is happening now for uh, Indian rupee and Chinese yuan. And so like uh, remittance is becoming a lot cheaper thanks to these these technologies. And Bitcoin is, you know, as part of that fabric that that makes that happen. So, yeah, man, uh, remittance is another huge driver for Bitcoin, I think. Well, Tor, it's been, as always, fascinating, interesting, a lot of fun. <laughs> And um, I want to thank you for your time. Yeah, likewise. It was uh, very interesting. Uh, looking forward to chatting with you again. Thank you for tuning in. CapEx Big Question Podcast is sponsored by Serif, an exclusive, private, global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Serif, go to serif.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H dot V for Vicky, C for Charlie.